Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 38, No More Innocent Ignorance, featuring conversations with C. Brian Williams and Michael J. Bobbitt. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out And the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague to subscribe to SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, we also have a pod shop. Go to teachingartistry.org slash podshop and get yourself a t-shirt or um, a tank top or a cozy hoodie. Um, We have v-necks, we have long sleeve tees, crew necks. There's also mugs and tote bags. And I've said this before, but hey, you know, never never can say it too many times. Um, Teaching RSU with Courtney J. Body also has a YouTube channel where you can watch about 50 episodes of two different video series. The first series uh, that we started with was Keep Making Art with guests who are discussing their creative projects that they were doing during the uh, COVID pandemic that we are currently still in. And We Can't Go Back. And this is a video series where we examine anti-racism practices in the arts and arts education field. Both series uh, have been produced in partnership with Creative Generation. So watch and subscribe today. Hey, y'all. This podcast originally launched in 2017. Um, So it was conceived the year before, but we have existed in the same time frame as the outgoing White House administration and president. And now... While the nation is embarking on a new federal government, this podcast is kicking off a new season. And we, we need change. And there is no doubt about that. We also need rest. We need healing. But the insurrection that took place at the Capitol on January 6th was a clear display that something is rotten and dangerous in our country. Um, I could go on and on about the hypocrisy of how 
the protest or this particular protest was met by police in contrast to other protests in 2020. But I want to zoom in on the podcast's focus, arts and arts education. When I launched We Can't Go Back, it was meant to jostle me and us out of complacency and complicity with systemic racism and help to encourage action to undo harm and dismantle oppression within our field. And while we have uh, done some good work, I think we have a long way to go. And this podcast has evolved over the course of the last four years um, based on my own journey and the inquir- inquiry questions that I have, um, which back then were, you know, what is teaching artistry and why don't more people know about it? Let's talk about it to the kinds of questions that I'm asking now, which are about predominantly white led arts institutions and how they how they need to and what's, you know, very concrete actions they can take to dismantle racist syst- uh, systems and policies Um Now, we literally cannot go back. We won't go back. We must decolonize. We must embrace indigeneity and be fiercely anti-racist and all of its intersections. Um, Intersectionality is a big big thing and um, it's complex and it's um, frankly never-ending. So, Today's episode is going to focus on more guests from We Can't Go Back, um, and we'll start with C. Brian Williams. So C. Brian Williams uh, joined me very shortly, actually, after his company, Step Africa, premiered um, its film called Stono, and that is based off of the Stono Rebellion of 17. 17- 39. um, If you don't know that, look it up. But that happened, you know, um, before we actually, you know, America became America. Um, But slavery has been um, real since 1619 uh, in this nation and uh, uh, globally from earlier than that. Um, So when it comes to Brian, I will admit that I am a bit of a fangirl. Um, he's an incredible human who is well studied, thoughtfully, um, develops dance works that illuminate moments of African American and American history. He's really, um, uh, interested in protests and how protests can move our nation. And, um, sometimes it can move it in positive ways and sometimes not. Um, so that, that's a, that's interesting right there. Um, he also cares very deeply for the arts field and the dancers and choreographers in Step Africa. So take a listen to the first part of episode 38, No More Innocent Ignorance. Welcome to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. That's me. This is a podcast that celebrates artists and advocates for community engagement. And this is We Can't Go Back, a video series in partnership with Creative Generation meant to examine, interrogate, and confront racist policies and systems in the arts. This series amplifies leaders in the arts and culture who drive radical change in communities through anti-racist and liberatory practices. 
Subscribe to the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I live in Brooklyn on the stolen lands of the Lenape and Canarsie nations. I identify as a black cisgendered woman and I would like to uplift and pay respect to my ancestors from the, across the African diaspora, stolen from their native lands and within the U.S. I also pay respect and uplift the indigenous diaspora that are woven into my history and DNA through a network of solidarity and love from the Cherokee, Creek, and Uchi nations. Now, let's welcome our guest, C. Brian Williams. Hi, Brian. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you, Courtney. Nice to see you too. Welcome. Thank you for that beautiful acknowledgement. Thank you. Um, so, Brian, can you let everybody know what is your role in arts and or arts education and how do you embed anti-racism practices into your work? Well, you know, I started Step Africa over 25 years ago and Step Africa is the first professional company in the world dedicated to the art form of stepping. And for me, arts and arts education practice is really woven into the very fiber of the organization. It's really a part of who we are. I always say that we love performing on stages, but it's the work that we do in communities with children that is, you know, equally important to the company. So when I think about, you know, the times that we find ourselves in now, and um, trying to build and working to build a, a much better society and world. I think about what South Africa has done and what I've been trying to do, which is to create space for opinions and people that there wasn't space before. And so that's something that I'm really focused on. The last production that was presented at the New Victory, Drum Folk, really had a profound impact on me and the audiences. Drum Folk is a work that um, Sabafka has really been working its entire existence to create. You know, I'll tell just a little bit of background for you. The reason we wanted to do Drum Folk was when I first learned how to step, and stepping, for those who don't know, is a tradition created by African-American fraternities and sororities. It's like a cultural ritual practice that we have to celebrate our, these organizations. But if you would ask a member of a fraternity or sorority where stepping came from, there wouldn't be a very strong answer. They wouldn't really know the history or it would be something generic like it comes from Africa. So Step Africa, I personally was not satisfied with that answer. So I started to do a little research and that's where we came to know about the Stoner Rebellion of 1739 and the Negro Act of 1740. And we can talk about those more but those movements and those, those moments in history were very transformative for not just African-Americans, but America in general. So drum folk draws inspiration from, those, from that history. So when we shared this history in a performance um, with some elders, and this is like the, the over, um, I don't wanna age anybody, the, let's say the over 80 crew. We were in workshop for the production well before we would come to New Victory Theater and other theaters across the country. And it felt like it was like this, the theater became like this huge church almost. And this, it was primarily African-American audience, like I said, well over the age of 70, well over that age. And the way they resonated and connected with that work was something I'll never forget. Um, and South Africa will look forward to bringing that work and really targeting those communities even more aggressively in the years to come because that's why we build it. South Africa has been very 
aggressive with trying to share parts of American history that just have not been magnified or, or shared as much as they should, like transformative events in American history that just have been kind of just whitewashed to some degree and just looked over. And so we want to bring those stories forward. And the idea is that when we bring the stories forward, all of us, you know, of all backgrounds, just learn more about what has happened in this country. And, you know, and I personally know that there's still so much learning for me to do about indigenous communities in the country and Latinx communities and, and, and that particular story. You know, why don't we do a better job of teaching these lessons? So as an artist, you know, you have to choose your, your lane to some degree, or you have to choose what you can focus on because if not, you can't, I, I feel that you can't deliver an effective message. So for me, this moment in history, I was like, why do so people know, so few people know about these American activists in 1739 fighting for freedom and liberty even before the Boston Tea Party? And why don't we celebrate their efforts at pr protest? And then you start to look at what protest has done to America in general. Mm -hmm. And I'm no expert on this, but it'd be a great conversation about the history of protests in society. And, you know, whenever you, whenever you hear protests, people are like, well, no more protests or don't do this. But when we look at what protest does for the country, it, it really pushes us forward, you know, and it's almost like essential. So I'm very thankful to these young people that have been in the streets and marching and leading these protests and staying at it because they have made a, a huge effect and that all Americans will benefit from when we come out of this. You know, did you hear about Dolly Parton? Hey, that's so funny I'm bringing up Dolly Parton. But she said something, she said, uh, she said something interesting about Black Lives Matter and her response, which was wonderful, but she called it innocent ignorance. And I was like, hmm, you know, that's where you start to deal with the difference between individual and systemic. And I think what this moment is fighting is systemic inequality. Individuals may feel like they may not have that, but we operate in this historically inequitable system. And now we can finally say that we can't, no one can say they're ignorant to that fact. And that's huge. For me, that's huge. We can acknowledge that this is what it is. And then we can start, because once you acknowledge, then we can start to say, okay. I deal a lot with, in my work, trying to build strong institutions. I think what this pandemic and then the highlight on historic inequities has kind of revealed, and it's been in all this stuff, conversation about business ownership and the arts. And yeah. it's one thing to transform institutions from within, and we talked about that, and that's important. How can predominantly white institutions better respond? Um, but I'm also of the mind where how do we also just have a stronger ecology of arts organizations that are equally are equitably representative represented in the sphere because let's look at washington dc which is where step africa is based uh step africa is now the largest organization of color in the region in dmv but we're also but we're still a very small organization about 2.5 million dollars annually so there's this very clear ceiling in terms of our capacity to grow to scale so I still only have four to five uh, administrative people and full-time artists. So the question is, what are those historic inequities and structural inequities that have kind of prevented the growth of the organizations that we need? Why don't we have a thriving black theater company in the city? Mm. What is going on in the structure 
that hasn't allowed those organizations to prosper. So that's what I'm starting to look at really. How do we, what are those institutional barriers that exist? Because we need to have strong institutions to anchor the community as well. We can't just be relying on individuals transforming elsewhere. How can these institutions also respond to the issue? And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, like just last thing I'll say, South Africa's role in this is like we employ 14 artists of color full time. And, we're, and we've been very dedicated to keep them employed through this period. That's really hard to do, but other, you have to have an institution to support the individual artists. You know, the arts field is a hard field regardless. Anyone who's in the arts knows how strong, how hard it is to support and manage arts organizations, no matter what the size is. I don't care how big you are, how small you are, you still have to, it's still a lot of work to survive in this field. And what I try to share though with my uh, compadre, you know, my peers who are leaders of organizations, maybe predominantly white led, is that if you think it's difficult as a leader of a major white theater, I want you to imagine how much more difficult it is in this current society for a person of color, right? Funding opportunities are so different. The individual fundraising opportunities are so different. And we, a lot of talk has been happening in the country now about the racial wealth gap and how the great disparities between uh, wealth in white communities versus black communities. And you know, th that kind of, those stats affect other parts of ecology as well. So I feel that concrete actions that large institutions can do is look at partnerships with arts organizations of color. Meaningful, mm. long-term, not transactional partnerships, multi-year partnerships that talk about space, mentorship, capacity building. And then here's the, the real word, donor build, donor sharing and, ex, and uh, exchange. Because if you look at individual donors and the gifts that happen, you, could, you can see that they say that organizations of color get less than five, less than 10, well, well under 10% of their annual budget from individual fundraising. Mm. The larger, uh, predominantly white organizations, that number is shoots up by 50% or something very significant. Those gifts could be transformational for our organizations and allow them to be more stronger uh, and long-term partnerships will do that too. So that's what I want to see. That's what I'm hoping will happen in DC. We're going to try it and work on that now actually. And uh, let's see what happens. And I hope to see this replicate. Hope we'll come up with something that works because I want to see stronger arts institutions, BIPOC institutions. Mm. I don't want to see us kind of hobbling along while let's say the, Shakespeare, the, the theaters that do Shakespeare and the ballets are dominating the funding scene. I want to see us raise, you know, like the Crossroads Theater in New Jersey. So many challenges, but excellent work and amazing history. Amazing work, yes. So what happened there? I mean, and it's, not just all, it's not just always mismanagement. That's what I think the conversation can finally stop. It's not, sometimes it's not management. It's structural inequities that make it incredibly difficult for groups to survive in this structure that we have. So that's what we're trying to change. What does a liberated, racially just world, whether it's in the arts or in general, what does it look like? You know, it's, I think, you know, so hard to imagine because we're so bogged down in the structure that we have created. And it almost makes you, you know, kind of perpetually settle for less. So I wonder if it's about 
the aspirations of the next generation would have, would feel no limit, would feel that the structure is built to support and maintain each and every one of us versus this implicit bias you think you get when you deal within the society. So we wouldn't assume, I wouldn't personally assume as a black man that if a white police officer stops me, it might be a problem. Or I wouldn't assume that if I raise my voice that it wouldn't be just, I'm angry about a point, uh, but I'm an angry black man. Or as a black woman, that if I'm assertive in how I feel, that it's not that I'm angry, it's just that I'm asserting a belief and perspective. And can we get away from labeling parts of our community as angry? And because that kind of silences us a little bit. So I would think less silence, more openness. Um, so that, and, and it's, but it's going to be hard because we've been in this for a long time. And it's going to take a while for even us to free up and really speak, you know? So I think that's, a, that's one step for me. And I think that to your people who may be listening, when they enter the room, it's kind of a tough conversation to have. You know, and you're sitting in a room and you know about these labels that have been passed down. I think about Serena Williams sometimes and the challenges she talked about as a black woman in the healthcare industry and how she would say, I'm hurting, mm -hmm. wasn't responded to the same way. That, oh, no, you, you, you'll be all right. You're strong. I mean, what are you saying? No, I'm hurting. And it wasn't heard the same way as, say, of a, of a, of a, of a white woman had said that. And that's what, that's what I love to see how we get, we strike that down so that people can just be heard as humans and we erase all these, these valuations we place on people that have nothing to do with their humanity. There's so many theories around like the delicacy of white women and how black women are so strong and that that is, a, that is true that black women are strong, but we're also not infallible and no. we feel pain and we feel, you know, and the fact that we are not heard when we say yeah. we are in pain physically, yeah. that bias is, and that, and that happens for many people of color. It does. And I don't think it's, and that's a huge, mm -hmm. a huge injustice because it's not allowing us to be exactly just to be human. Yeah. You have to kind of portray this superhuman quality and this assumption of just, just not feeling anything. And that's just not, I just really, I don't, that's a hard one to fix. That's a hard one to fix. Yeah, Learning no. about the history, shared history, not having this innocent and ignorance about other people's cultures and experience to really come into the space, ready to hear all stories. We could talk forever. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> um, but um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave it there, I think. Um, if there's any last comments you'd like to leave before we say our final final goodbyes no i just say thank you thank you for having me thank you for your work you know south africa has come to uh your place of work beautiful new victory theater several times and what you have uh done with our um our productions first the migration on reflection the migration and second drum folk and sharing it with so many students i'm really appreciative of that i, I want to just thank you for that and, you know, teaching also me in South Africa about this work of arts education and taking 
theater into the schools because that's where the that's where the real impact is and into communities as well so thanks for that and i look forward to working with you again yeah well thank you i'm i'm quite humbled by what you just said um and thank you for your beautiful work thank you for uh having this really interesting conversation with me and the audience and Thank you all for watching Teaching RSU with Courtney J. Body. Um, this conversation is definitely going to be on the audio podcast. Uh, that platform is SoundCloud, or you could subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get uh, or listen to your podcasts. And um, Brian said it. I'm going to say it. We won't go back. You can't go back. Onwards. So if you don't know Step Africa's work, I highly recommend checking them out on Facebook or on their website. Um, and I believe the um, Stono, uh, the film Stono is available, or at least trailers are. But I had a, a great opportunity to um, watch it during a watch party um, last year. And then there was this really incredible um, discussion afterwards. And... Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's good work. Check it out. All right. So next up is Michael J. Bobbitt. And, um, actually Michael and I have known each other for several, several years, but it's only been fairly recently that he and I have, have, um, shared more, more, uh, I guess, meaningful spaces together. And, um, it's been really wonderful to, listen to him speak. Um, and, in, in um, when I, you know, sort of conceived of this with creative generation, he was at the top of the list of, of folks that I wanted to make sure were guests on the show. And so he is actually, I think the, the second or third guest, um, early on. And yeah, Michael, what I, what I enjoy about Michael is, um, well, one, I mean, oddly, this is such an odd thing to say, but like, he reminds me so much of my cousin, um, who I adore. They just have a lot of the same, um, ways of seeing the world, um, as well as, um, they just sound, they sound and look alike actually. <laughs> so that that's a thing. Um, but one of the things that I love about Michael is he can take something that is quite can feel quite nebulous and really make it super concrete, um, whether it's through some sort of theory or, um, or really truly like a, here's something to do. So he shares concrete actions in this conversation around how um, arts institutions can shift or change their policies in order to shift power towards equity. Um, he also by the way, um, has written a series uh, um, uh, for American Theater Magazine that further illuminates many of the points that he makes in this interview. You know, Michael is is very clear. He's determined. He's incredibly innovative in his thinking, I believe. And I'm listening. I'm here for it. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud to be in community with him. Here is the conclusion of episode 38 um, the first episode of season five. What? Here is Michael J. Bobbitt 
No more innocent ignorance. Let's welcome our guest, Michael J. Bobbitt. Hi, Michael. Hi, Courtney. How are you? It's good to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, I absolutely adore you. Um, so thanks for joining me. Can you tell us what our, your role in arts and arts education is and, and how do you embed anti-racist practices into your work? Sure. Um, before we do that, do you mind if I do a little bit of um, land acknowledgement as well? Absolutely. Please do. Um, we are sitting in Watertown. Um, I'm at the Repertory Theater in Watertown, Maryland, um, Watertown, Massachusetts. And we are, the original people that were here were called Pigs Gusset. Um, they were uh, part of the Pequoset Band of the Massachusetts Tribe. And um, their um, Pigs Gusset means Meadow of the Widening of the River. And it was renamed Watertown. Uh, and I'm all, I also identify as a gay black man, um, gay cisgender black man. Uh, so I just want to put that out there. Um, so my role, uh, my current job is artistic director. Um, and I have been in this capacity at another job prior to this for um, 12 years prior. So uh, I've been in sort of a theater leadership role um, in the last few years. And I've been trying to spread the joy of anti-racism uh, all over the country. Actually, tomorrow morning, I have my first international uh, panel conversation about anti-racism. So my national tour is going international. Yay, yay. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and can you give us some examples? Um, I, you know, I, I've been on a town hall panel with you, which I uh, feel was a part, was very, I felt very honored to have been in the, that particular company. Uh, and I heard you say then that I have been working anti-racism practices into my work for many years. So I'm just curious, you know, what are some concrete examples of how anti-racist practices can be embedded into institutions and maybe talk a little bit about your own experience in, in these, uh, this work, either at where you are working or where you have worked. Sure, yeah, you and I have been in a lot of rooms together, but really haven't had this kind of chance to sort of get to know each other and bond. So I'm so glad this is happening. Um, I like to start by saying to people that I believe this work, anti-racism, anti-oppression, equity, diversity, inclusion, whatever name you want to put on it, um, is truly an act of love. We are showing love to people who have not been loved in this country ever, ever. And I like to think of this as we're, we're trying to end a race war, not start a race war. And I think many people think it's the opposite. Um, so I, I, I do think that the theater industry has been pontificating about this work for 20, 30 years. And while we've made some strides in the number of artists that we're seeing on our stage, represented on the stage, either behind the scenes or on stage, we haven't really seen much of a change in our audiences, in our funders. Mm. And that's where I'm focusing my effort. Um, I, you know, most of this field is made up of people who are fantastic at programming and creativity. And maybe where we are struggling, maybe where we, the reason why we haven't seen much of a change in our um, audiences is because we may need some more help on the financial side, on the government side, on the operations side, because that is where the systems really exist that perpetuate racism. 
the way we budget, the way we build our boards, the power we give to our boards, the, the processes and policies that we have in operations, the processes and policies and the privilege that we, we give to our donors, uh, we often, I mean, in our practice, we give more to people that already have a lot. Think about our donor benefits. The more you give, the more you get. Mm -hmm. A lot of the reason why you have that much money is because of privilege, unearned opportunities. So I'm looking at changing those kinds of systems. And I think that will actually build more of an anti-racist culture in my organization than doing more shows about people of color. That's happening at the same time. I'm certainly working to bring more artists and I've been doing that kind of work for years, bring more artists on the stage, not only in my theaters, but whenever I work outside of my theaters as a playwright, as a director, as a choreographer. But I think we have been struggling with the operational finance governance side of it all. Yeah, I was in a conversation with you with another executive and I've, I'm a programmer, right? And so I often am thinking about what's, you know, either artistic programming or education programming. And I heard you talking about policies and board and operations, and it really sort of uh, clicked in some, something in my head about, you know, when, when you were just talking even just now about the swag, the swag that people get at a gala event because you gave, you know, X amount of dollars to be at this fancy affair um, or um, the idea of, you know, why are we budgeting you know, years, two years in advance, you know, is there a way to be more responsive to, uh, culturally responsive, more responsive if, in terms of how we budget? So I would love to just get one like super concrete um, example of something that you have been able to do as an executive, um, either with a board or within policy or um, something that you'd like to do or working on toward. Um, I'll talk a little bit about boards. Uh, well, one of the one concrete example is that we are um, all of our donors are now going to get the same benefits. So my twenty five dollars is just as significant as your tw your twenty five thousand dollars. So you should get the same benefit of that gift, um, and that's how we create equity and create an equitable environment. But one of the things I like to think about when it comes to boards, one, I think that this industry has to, well, the whole nonprofit world has to reexamine the power dynamic of nonprofit boards. Um, if you think about it, we have um, transient, and not, not in a bad way, but, but people that come in for a few years and they leave, mm. but relatively transient volunteers that contribute funds, and sometimes in proportion to the size of the whole budget, that, that, that contribution is, is not very large. Um, and, and, you know, most boards, I think the average annual board, the average of sort of board giving is 22 to 25% of the annual fund, not the earned revenue, just the right. contributed revenue, 22 to 25% of the contributed revenue, but they have ultimate power. They have 100% ultimate power where they can fire the executive director. That's an interesting and a strange power dynamic. And if you go back and look at the 501c3 laws, there's maybe three laws that regulate um, that law, that tax law, which is you can't have less than three people, you have to meet once a year, and you gotta follow your financials. And even if you look at the state laws, there aren't that many more that really regulate how boards function. Boards have just created power mm. over the years. It was founded in 1968. 
and have made up their own rules for how they want to govern and lead and run organizations. But essentially when boards are making policy, they exist on a bell curve, right? All policies theoretically should exist on a bell curve where you're taking care of most of the people, right? In the center of that. Understanding that on the ends, some people are gonna get screwed, but it's hard to take care of every single person with a policy. Couple of things, one is that if your board is relatively homogenous from one type of person, then who are the people they're taking care of? They're taking care of people that look like them. So that's one reason why you have to diversify your boards because a white board will only see what a white board can see. It won't see the whole picture. A diverse board will see the whole picture. Typically when that is happening, even though it, it's supposed to be on a bell curve, it's not really looking like a bell curve. It's actually looking like a line like this, where you're taking care of the people that already have a lot. And the people that are marginalized are still getting less. So when you have a homogenous board, your policy exists like this. You're taking care of most of the people that look just like the board, and you're not taking care of the people that look, that are already marginalized. So policies now to take care of the people that are not being taken care of should do the opposite. The people that have, that can get what they need elsewhere should not be taken care of as much as we're taking care of them. And, and to me that, that harkens back to the, the, the love that you were talking about, right? And, and a, that's hard. What you just said is, I, I can see it and I love it, but I, I also have in the back of my head Michael Wiggins saying, like, if, if people wanted to fix it, they would have fixed it already. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. So what, like, when before we started recording, you were saying, you know, I have listed out the, the seven, what is it, the seven of grief? Yeah. No, I think that, honestly, for me, the racism won't end until white people are willing to give up power. If you think about it, go back to like women's right to vote. It wasn't women that got the right to vote. It was white men that chose to give them the right to vote. Um, think about Jackie Robinson. We were taught that he was the first black person to break the color barrier. He was better than every other black ball player out there which we know is not true based on stats. There were so many other ballplayers that were better than him. He was the first black person that was allowed by white people to play in the major leagues, which is a different narrative. And racism will end when white people are willing to give up power. And racism is prejudice, social power, and legal authority. And until those two things are, are given up, it won't end. Unfortunately, the thing that keeps people from doing that, one is power, power and money, right? The second is this sense of loss. And I think, I think racism will feel like the loss of a loved one. That energy that you go through when you are grieving the loss of a loved one, I think will be the same for many, many white people. And so I think it's gonna be like the seven stages of grief. Uh, but I think a lot of you seeing the stage where well, there's like disbelief and shock, mm. like, oh my God, it's true. Like because of COVID-19 and we were all stuck in our homes looking at George Floyd's murder, which became like must see TV. You couldn't change the channel or close it. You had to watch it. 
they were like, what, this really is true, it's really happening? So the, the shock of it all, and then they, they, many of them are moving on to the anger stage, but they're, you see it on the news every day, they're fighting and fussing and pushing against it and going back to 1960s kind of like racism, right? Um, and then most people get stuck in, in four, which is depression, which is like, I just wanna like curl under my cover, put the cover over my head and, and hope it'll disappear. And depression in many ways is not doing stuff, right? So you see a lot of people stuck. You see all of our theater organizations still having not put out their race equity plan, not even a draft of it. They haven't started because they're just so depressed and frozen with fear. But unfortunately that people of color are not gonna tolerate it anymore. This is a question. I'm on a lot of blogs. I'm on a lot, I'm in a lot of conversations. I am in a lot of different groups. And that what you just said about um, this sort of getting stuck, right? There's another part of that, that if you take it out of the seven stages of grief, it's also about, you know, not getting it right, which is not, it's not possible, but not that that stops people from taking action, right? And we're not gonna get it right. I don't know what it is, or I'm too lazy to figure out what it is, um, then, then, so how, you know, how do you, how, what's the, what's the, besides protests, right? Like what is the thing that will help move white people or white identifying people past the grief stage, do you think? I mean, well, so the first stage is shock and denial, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second stage is pain and guilt, which is why we got all those texts from our friends, right? Checking on us. Uh, and then you get into anger and bargaining, which we're seeing on TV all together, and then depression. The, that's the hardest one because depression, like I said, is, is not doing anything. So sometimes people just feel like if I don't, if I don't think about it, or if I, if I shove it into a little box and it won't actually harm me. Um, you know, that's the hard thing because I think that that's the difference in, a, in changing policy and changing hearts and minds, which I, which I think of as, as culture, culture and policy. We can change policy, we can fight and, and rip down statues and protests, which is not sustainable, like we're gonna get tired, um, with the hope that we're changing hearts and minds. Changing hearts and minds requires people to be uncomfortable, to push through all the things that they feel like they know, their belief system, to understand that they have been frankly lied to their whole lives by people that they felt and trusted who were also lied to their whole lives. So just recognizing that that is the truth. The truth is different than what I think it is and pushing past it. Action, the opposite of depression is doing something. So those people that just wanted to go away and want to cover up their head or ride it out, it's not going away. So you have to do something. And that's how you'll, and when you do stuff, when you have action, you accomplish something, you'll feel better and better. And then you'll want to do more and more and more. So do something, even if it feels uncomfortable, because you can push past that. Right. Well, none of us have the right to be comfortable when we're yeah. talking about race, right? None of us in this whole country. We, even people of color, are complicit in, in perpetuating it. So there's not one person I can think of in this whole country that has the right to be comfortable when talking about race. Maybe in a hundred years when the systems of race are eradicated, 
and race has be, become something to be revered, that I, I want to know so much about you because you are a person of color. I want to learn your customs and try your food and try your dances. I want to be who I am, but I want to learn everything I can to learn about who you are and what, you, what your culture is life, like and it's revered. Maybe then, in 100 years when racism is over, we can be comfortable about race. Well, you kind of answered my, my next question, which is about like, what does a, a liberated and racially just world look like? So I love this, I love this concept of revering race, revering black culture, rever not appropriating it, not extracting from it, but revering it and learning and, and um, engaging with, with people as opposed to pulling it and changing it. Um, uh, so I feel like there's another kind of question I could be asking you. What is it, I wonder? <laughs> uh, but I'm just curious, like, what, what are the other kinds of conversations that you're having um, around this? So I'm asking you specific questions, but, uh, you know, as you're, as you said, we're all complicit in this and your work, you, I know, are working on um, building anti-racism practices and really embedding them into your work and into the work of the institutions that you are running, what kinds of um, either challenges or surprises are you coming up against? Um, you know, the things that I'm trying to do um, in attacking the systems and governance are, um, so for, for instance, I, one of the, the, the difficult conversations I'm having with my board is that they're, they're new at the, in their race equity learning. I've been studying this for five years now. They're new at it, um, and it's a relatively homogenous board. We have a few more people of color coming in. Uh, we have three now. We have three more, two more coming in, and, and well, actually three more coming in. So, one of the conversations was about creating a sort of anti-racism committee. And my fear is that this is not a new practice. Boards have been doing this for the last five years, and it's all performative. It's all checking a box. The ultimate power still lands in the full board. This sort of anti-racism or EDI committee has no real power. They can make recommendations and oftentimes those recommendations are sent to the full board and the full board is uncomfortable so they don't take it. And then all the people of color on your EDI committee leave, right? We usually walk away. We're so worn out from having these conversations, we would walk away. So I said to them, we can create this committee, but not until you give them some power. You have to give them real power. Otherwise, it's going to be like relegating them to the kiddie table at Thanksgiving. Mm. And so my suggestion was, we have, they have made the rule that one of the action steps is that, that we're going to have equal representation on the board, which I think is amazing. So I said, so what are you going to do in the interim? What's our stopgap to keep you from passing a policy that may be racist or not equitable or not inclusive or not diverse? They were like, well, we have this committee. When they make a recommendation, we'll just take it. I went, but I'm telling you, I, I experienced that many, many times. It doesn't work. Now, if you gave them veto power, for them to stop a vote, stop a decision of the board that is not, ra that is not anti-racist, that is, not, that is you know, inclusive, diverse, and, and uh, equitable, then that's power. That is power. And additionally, it covers your ass because there's two things. One with the call out cancel culture, one mistake. That's all it takes, one mistake. Two, the more inclusive we get, 
the more exposed we are to our unintended racism. And so having this committee and giving them veto power is a way to protect you from making a mistake. So that's one of the, one of the difficult conversations I'm having. The other conversation I'm having is that we are getting rid of um, racist subscription models. I think they're, one, I think those models are broken not only from a racism point of view, but also from a financial point of view and a marketing point of view. Uh, and it's something this industry has been complaining about for years, yet we haven't taken the time to build a new model. And I, and I think mostly because people are, it's not even that people are afraid of change, it's just the, the cultures are afraid of change. You, know, you think about companies like Kodak, who had someone on their staff that came to them and said, hey guys, you should look at this thing I just invented called digital, digital photography. And they were like, no, <laughs> stay forever. And where's Kodak now? It's gone. So the reason why we don't have a new subscription model is because no one's actually taken the time to build it. Um, so I am looking to eradicate it, to come up with a more equitable model where you pay a certain amount of money a month and you get all access to all things, plus maybe benefits at discounts at other organizations. Um, I'm also going to general admission seating. I want everyone to have the chance to sit up front. Some of the controversy is that it's going to be chaos. And I said to my people that said that, when you go to church and synagogue, is it chaos? No, you just ask, is this he taken? And people will say yes or no. And then you go sit somewhere else. Um, so humans are used to that, but I want everyone to have the chance to sit up front. Hmm. Um, so those kinds of models, I think I can incorporate those in my institution, but typically theater goers go see shows at a lot of different places. So if they're experiencing it in my space, one or two things will happen. Either they'll put pressure on other organizations to change their policies, or they'll come back to me and say, I don't like this. I went to this theater and this theater and this theater. They're not doing that. So you have to go back and do something else. So that's one of the concerns I have. So I'm trying to, trying to get funders to, to help me beta test these models with a cohort of theaters that are large or small or from around the country that are affinity theaters, that are PWI theaters. And then us to sort of like figure this out and work out the kinks. I feel like there's a study in that too. Somebody should call somebody. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's a study in that, right? Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking. I, no, I was gonna say some MFA program, just figure out how to study this for us and then, yeah. That's exciting. Can you just, um, for, the, for the listeners who may not know what PWI means? Uh, predominantly white institutions. And I think that's a thing of the past. I don't think we should, should allow those anymore. Like Carmen Morgan says, you don't get to be a predominantly white institution anymore. So maybe the new term is predominantly multiracial institution. Um, well, Michael, I could talk to you forever. Like I, I, like I have so many questions, but I'm trying to keep this a tight, tight conversation. Um, so thank you for these really interesting ideas that I, I still, as I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm having a lot of conversations. I'm not, there's some new things here. I'm interested in talking more about that general admission um, only, only because for uh, the school base, it, it is general admission. We don't have tickets, but we end up, it's all about 
group size and need in terms of students with disabilities or um, whatnot. Uh, and we have multiple levels and that's been really, it's really challenging to be as equitable. Like if you've been in the balcony before, we try to make sure that the next time you come, you're in a different spot, but you know, it's, it's a challenge because it's not always the same kids, <laughs> right? So it's, oh, uh, yeah. so I'm curious about that. Uh, from an education standpoint, but also from a prescription or a subscription, excuse me, um, or membership. Yeah, there's some kinks yeah. to worked out, and I have my staff looking at um, movie theaters that don't have tiered seating structure, but you can still reserve your seat early. Mm-hmm. It still is first come, first serve, but it goes to everyone at the same time. We're not giving it to subscribers first. We're not giving it to donors first. It goes to everyone at the same time. So we'll see how that works out. Wow. I'm into it. I, I'd love to. I'd love to follow up. Definitely. And and please, 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 please. Let's keep talking because, as I said, I, I really I've always enjoyed, you know, our, our interactions, which have been somewhat minimal, but I feel like are are getting closer and closer together. Um, and I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. So thank you so much again for taking the time to be with me and our audience. Anything? Any last words that you'd like to say? Oh, I love your your concept of we can't go back because if we do go back the way it is, it is a massive failure. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for watching Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This conversation will also be on our audio podcast, so subscribe to the SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, like Michael said, we won't go back. We can't go back. Onwards. Thank you for listening to episode 38 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. No more innocent ignorance. Join us next time for more conversations from the We Can't Go Back video series featuring a panel with Toya Lillard, Robin Walker-Murphy, and Darrell Cooper. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all of the teaching artists in your life.